I just want to make things better than they were. Right. That's sort of my main objective in all moments. Like I really don't like it when things are unfair. That makes me crazy. And I really feel like my job as a person, especially given all the good fortune I've had and all the things that have happened to me are to make wherever I am better. That's my job. So if it's the company, make the company better, more performant. If it's equal pay, make the company more fair, make it more equal. Like underneath it all, I'm a product manager. Right. So everything I'm doing is a next best action. Like when I think about a problem, the main thing I think is like, okay, what is my best next action in this problem? What's the best thing I can do next that will have the biggest impact? Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. I'd like to think, oh, Jubin, you're so easygoing and not high maintenance, but I'm like, turns out exceptionally high maintenance about a lot of things. As an example, (laughs) like I can't sleep without a fan on. Oh, you just need the noise. I need the noise. Like, you know, they have little machines too. I'm the same way. I need the noise. If it's too cold, I won't turn the fan on, turn the little like sleep machine thing on. I think it's kind of normal. Did you grow up in a big city? No, I'm like a wimp, I think. I'm like a little bubble boy. (laughs) I grew up in the Bay Area. I've lived in the city for the last 10 years and I've developed this thing. I've become more sensitive over time, especially about my sleep. It's loud. I'm becoming softer. How old are you? I'm 30. Yeah. You're just getting a little older, dude. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. No, it's normal. Wait that's, until you're 48. Then you really start feeling so it. That's so sad. Do you have anything <laughs> like that? Oh my God. So many things. Are you kidding me? Well, first of all, what happens in your 40s is this weird thing where like you just stop sleeping. You wake up at four o'clock in the morning, whether you want to or not. And is that ubiquitous? Of- Does everybody feel like that? Or do you? Some people wake up at like midnight. Like my husband wakes up from midnight to two. The sleep gets a little harder. It yeah. gets a little harder to stay asleep through the night, which yeah. I think is sort of a beast. Yeah. And then like, I think as you get older, you just develop picadillos. You know, little weird things. What is it called? Like, picadillos, like little weird. Um, <laughs> is that like an idiom? Uh, no, it's like a weird habit, like a little picadillo, picadillo. Or a little, like weird I've sort never, of. Uh, I've never heard that. Like sort of little tick almost kind of thing. I think it happens. Okay, picadillo. I'm going to write that down for later. <laughs> picadillo. Well, I'm really excited to be doing this. So Me thank too. you. Thank you. Have you heard any of these before? Do you have any idea what we're doing? I heard a little bit of Varney's. Okay. But yeah, a little bit, but you know. It's super casual. Super. It's super casual. Right. Any F-bomb that we drop is totally fine. <laughs> we'll just bleep it. I went to religious school, so I can turn it off pretty aggressively. Yeah, but like turning it off means we're not being totally ourselves in all cases, you know. And <laughs> you, you are Salesforce media trained. I am. Which is such a burden as an, as an interview, as an, as an, as an interviewer. It's like, oh my God. Patterson has notes like the, oh, the, Sarah's. the, oh, yeah. the thickness of my arm. It's just like pages. And I, the whole time I'm like, all right, you're not going to look at those notes. There's no way you're going to look at those notes this entire time. Yeah. I don't ever have notes. Yeah. I think you do pretty bad with notes. No, no, sorry, yeah, I don't need that. I don't really need too many guardrails on how I'm talking. And normally, I mean, look, 
if you wanted to like delve into a whole bunch of details in the business and yeah. look at numbers, like maybe I would have like a, no, probably yeah. not even then, but I, you know what? I stopped taking notes when I joined a public board. That's really when it all stopped. Oh, really? Well, what they don't talk about is like on public boards, any notes you take are discoverable. Anything you write down, if you're a public board member, is discoverable in any instance that the company gets put into any kind of strange position. So like my first day on the public board, I had my notebook out and my pen, like ready to learn. And they were all like, knock it off. Don't take one note. No notes. And I was like, what are you talking about? So like, when you say discoverable, qualify that. Like if something happens with the company. As a board member, oh, you're oh, like it's all subject. It's all subject to the court of law, basically. Yeah. yeah. So discoverability. Like, even if you I, write like, a note like, this looks funny. Like all of a sudden, this looks funny. It can be discovered if something happens. Yeah. And as a board member, you have like a higher level of fiduciary and legal responsibility yeah. of the company. Yeah. So yeah, I wasn't like I liked taking notes very much before then. But that gave me the real excuse to just stop it completely. Because I was like, yeah, I don't need that risk on me. Interesting. You want to know how excited I was to do this today? Yeah, how? Can I, can I symbolically tell you tell why this was so important to me? Tell me. Okay, so I ordered some new Mediterranean restaurant in the city last night with a buddy. And we were going to start watching the Theranos, the ther- like the, oh, yeah, the yeah, fictional yeah, yeah. but non-fictional Theranos right, like, right, documentary right. or whatever. But it's a series. It's a TV series. Totally, totally. Which, I don't know. Have you seen this? Like, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm excited. She's so well cast oh, yeah. for that. She's terrifying. For, she's just super scary. Terrifying. Super it's terrifying. Scary. It looks a lot like her. I couldn't wait. I'd done my research in advance. I got, actually, the hardest thing with you, so I have a rule of thumb where no guest is allowed to have more than two pages of notes because otherwise I just try and get through the notes and we don't have a conversation. And one of the hardest times I've ever had trimming it down is on yours because you have almost a page of resume. I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) I'm 48. I'm a lot older than everybody So anyway, I'm doing my prep. I'm getting ready. I'm feeling pretty good. And you know, you've done a lot of media. I'm deep into Layla at this point. Like I know I'm picking up what you're putting down. I know what's going on. Okay. And I'm like, you got to get your eight hours of sleep. You're sensitive. You're kind of soft these days. Make sure you get your sleep. Okay. And I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping five, six in the morning. This is maybe too much information. No, I'm, I'm think, excited. Think, tell think, me, tell me. I think me. you're going to know. Do you know when you get this really soft, almost buzzing feeling in the back of your neck before yes. you're about to throw up? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Has that happened to you this That morning? happened at 6 a.m. And I'm like, that's weird. Jump out of bed. Throw up. Okay? Oh, my God. And then at 8 a.m., I call my buddy. And I'm like, hey, did you throw up this morning? He's like, yeah, I've been throwing up all night. So whatever we ate last night. Made us basically has made us throw up all morning. So this morning, I'm like, okay, all right, Juven, what are you gonna do? And I'm like, don't be a fucking loser. <laughs> We're doing this. Just drink some more coffee, whatever. And oh my um, god, you should have canceled. No way, are no you chance. Crazy? No, no, no chance. Because it took us six weeks to schedule. No way. And so I was like, you know what? Maybe this is a good thing. If this even dials your energy back 5% with Layla, then maybe the two of you won't spontaneously explode in the middle of this conversation. And so come like 11, 12, I'm like feeling pretty good, but I'm like a little tired, right? And just again, I'm soft now, right? So my stomach's soft, my sleep is soft. And so I was like, all right, how am I going to get energy? And so I went to yoga and I was like, you know what? I'm going to sweat this out. Totally. I'm going to sweat this out. I'm going to go to yoga. So I'm fresh out of yoga. Literally, I just got here like 20 minutes ago because I was like, I'm going to prioritize getting yoga. It's going to get it out of my system. And then when I'm with Layla, I'm going to be right here. And how do you feel? I feel great. I'm going to be present 
with Layla. Yoga's huge for that. Isn't that good? That is great. I'm impressed. Thank you. See, I don't think you're soft. That's Thank like you. pretty, that's pretty hardcore when, there. Because not every day we have our A game, right? right? When you don't have it, what do you do? Here's the thing with me on that. Sometimes I don't want to do it, right? Sometimes it's hard to find the energy. I have an obscene well of energy. What normal people have on their most energetic day is my least energetic day. Yeah. So oftentimes I can get it. I do yoga. I do all those types of things too. But often, you know, I go from back to back to back to back to back. And a lot of the things I'm going back to back to back into are not necessarily the most fun, right? As COO, we spend a lot of time sort of rummaging through what's not going well mm -hmm. and what is Rummaging is a good way of putting it. The other thing I do is I get a lot of energy from giving it to others. It's a rewarding thing for me to walk into a room of people that are sort of like humpty dome and get them all like, yeah, that makes me super fired up. It's my job. It's taken me a long time to get to a healthy place with what's my job and what's me. But like a big part of my job is giving other people energy, giving other people courage, giving other people faith, giving yeah. other people hope. Yeah. So I, to some degree, I bring it about like I do my job, like the same way I would read a spreadsheet is right. the same way I think. If I walk into, the, I once had a boss like 100 years ago when I was an individual contributor, <laughs> and he said to me, if you're in a bad mood, don't come to work. I was like, what? He's like, if you're in a bad mood, just don't come to work. Because if you're in a bad mood, the whole office gets in a bad mood. You specifically me, or me, you? Me, you, me, yeah. directed only at me. And I remember at the time being sort of offended by that. Like, what do you mean? I can only be happy. I'm not allowed to have a rough day or right. anything like that. But what actually I've come to understand that he meant was like the way I lead is through excitement and energy and joking and making work more fun. So if I walk in and I'm like, work sucks, I'm not happy, then everyone who looks to me like, oh, there's Layla, she's having fun. So I can have fun. They start being like, oh, this sucks. I don't want to do it. And it has sort of a negative effect. So I think at that point, I just decided I have to put that aside. Like if yeah. I'm not feeling good, then talk to my husband, do yoga, do some kind of thing that like gets me back. But like when I walk into the office, it's not really about me. It's about the 400 people that work for me that are looking at me. I think my favorite definition of sales, because a lot of people ask, what is sales? How do you define sales? And I think my favorite definition, and I'm requoting someone, is the transfer of enthusiasm from you to somebody else. And I believe that wholeheartedly. And I also happen to usually be in positions in my career where enthusiasm and energy is somewhere where it's a competitive advantage for me. It's a part of my job at that point. I don't think that's by accident. Like, I think we spike there. And I think we happen to either be put in or choose positions where that is to our advantage. Well, right. Like, the, I mean, I've been recently trying to explain my job to my mother like I'm an athlete. Imagine if I'm an athlete, mom, because my mom's like, why are you working? What are you doing? Why don't you come to your nails with me? You know, I have a Turkish mother. She has her own ideas about how life should be spent. <laughs> but I finally got to this point where there was like, imagine if I were an athlete yep. and this were my job, right? Like training was my job. A big part of the job, especially in an early stage tech company or in tech in general, which is hardcore and there's lots going on is maintaining a pretty even and positive attitude, even in the face of terrible things. It's hard to grow companies. It's hard to start companies. It's hard to figure out what to do at certain stages in growth with a company. But if you approach it like you're an athlete and like, okay, so I'm going from running 100 meters to running 500 meters. So I'm definitely going to need some different skills, but I know what got me to 100 meters will probably serve in certain ways. And energy has a big component of that. A lot of people don't know how to harness their energy or they're scared to be 
too loud, too big, too this, too that. And so I think sometimes when someone like you or me come in the room with that kind of energy, it loosens people up. It frees them up to have an opinion. It's the most disarming thing. Okay, one more quote, and all of a sudden I've become a philosopher as soon as we've sat down. But uh, I can't. I also can't remember, maybe it was Ben Franklin, but maybe it was someone else equally as awesome who talked about how success is moving from one failure to another without the loss of enthusiasm. Right. I couldn't agree more with that. And I think like in startups or fast-growing companies, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of failures, things change. And all of a sudden, what I've noticed, I don't know if you agree with this, is that you become the culture person when you always have the enthusiasm. Not only are you good at your job, but you're also additive to culture, which I've always found is really easy. Okay, maybe I suck at my job someday, but if I'm the culture person, it just becomes harder to get rid of me because like, I'm additive to the culture of the company. Do you ever get that? Totally. I mean, listen, I actually think that up until very recently, culture was understated as an important value towards being a whole executive or even a whole employee. But the reality is like the culture of the company is why you stay. There are a lot of successful companies, right? There's a lot of companies that are doing well. And, you know, if you're good, you can get your pick of where you want to go. But the culture of a company is the thing that makes people stay. And there are culture carriers, right? They're the people inside the organization at the top, obviously, but all the way through it that hold some part of the culture inside of them. And then that culture exudes from them and people feel compelled to do more when they're with them or around them. And being a culture carrier, there are some people who own that as a job and they have this sort of big idea of trying to put together all these different pieces. But for those of us that just do it innately, like it's part of who you are, it's part of who I am too. It's also part of where we come from, the culture where you come from, Persia, where I come in, you know, Iran and Turkey, like people are chatty, people are yelling, people are like, you know, it's not America is a little more tame in certain places. People tend to be a little more quiet in certain instances where I think different cultures will come in and what's very easy for you from an energy and me, like we can walk in and that's our normal state is to be laughing and talking and energetic. For another person is incredibly intimidating, right? So they feel, if you can find a way to make them feel comfortable in that moment while you're pushing energy out, their comfort in doing it themselves sort of expands and then you get more of those culture carriers. I totally agree. And if I were to poll our CEOs at Kleiner today and ask them, what is your number one regret or mistake building a second office somewhere else besides your HQ? You know what they almost definitely say? That they did not have the foundation of that office be built by a quote unquote culture carrier. Mm. Someone that can transfer enthusiasm and repeat the same essence of what's happening at HQ there. Right. Otherwise, if you just try and start from a blank slate, it doesn't always work. No. And it's expensive and it's hard. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I think moving into different offices in different locations, for me, I always think about who's the executive, who's the person that's going to own. It doesn't necessarily have to be an executive either, but who's the person that's going to own the culture in the office and make sure that there's that feeling and that vibe. And remote offices have their own vibe too. There's always something a little different. New York will have a slightly different vibe. Then San Francisco, then Chicago, what have you. But knowing what the clear parts of your culture and really the mission and the values that are non-negotiable for how you want to build culture will help you make those types of moves. Because inevitably, like you will have people that weren't there, weren't part of the original culture building, weren't there when the company started, haven't been in the HQ office and are being asked to open EMEA or open, you know, Asia Pack or do something different. So you need to give them 
the framework for what the culture is and then get them inundated into how it works. So when they go into the geography to do that, they have a good idea of what's negotiable and what isn't. I couldn't agree more. On the energy piece, I've also been described as a boundless amount of energy to the point where people yell at me from conference rooms next door. I get so easily excitable that my voice gets loud. We already have naturally loud voices. And it's like, Juben, you can't just scream throughout the office everywhere you go. Little things just make me so excited that are so innocuous that most people do not get this easily excited about. And it just does not take much for me to think something funny or exciting or whatever. But I will say I do have to do a set of things behind the scenes that absolutely refill my cup. And I never used to think that way. I always used to think it was natural ability. And then I started burning out. Then I realized that there are a non-negotiable set of things that I have to do almost daily, but certainly weekly, that are ritualized for me, that give me that fuel. Do you have those? Oh gosh, yeah. What are they? Listen, I mean, so I have children, so making time to not work has been something for me. I am the, the mind that I can outwork any problem. And that's pretty much how I've approached my career up until you hit a certain level and that starts to break apart. So spending time with my kids, I read a lot. I read fiction. I don't read nonfiction. I do not read business books. I don't get anything out of that. I read stories. I read fiction. I read things about lands that don't exist. It's an escape motion. I do yoga twice a week. I'm, I am not good at it. Like I would never do it in front of anyone else, but the motion of moving through the breathing and stretching and taking two hours a week where I'm just not, where I'm doing something totally different is part of it. I listen to music. I've always listened to music. Oftentimes if I need to like refill or I feel like I've just put a lot of energy out, I'll go on a walk and just listen to music for an hour. And when I come back, I feel better. What I've started to distill down, what is it that is actually refilling my cup? I realize that it's anything that forces me to be present is what is refilling my cup. Because I don't know if you're similar to me in this respect or not, but I'm a thinker. I overthink everything to the point of anxiety. Like it gives me anxiety because I'm always thinking about something else in some other place that I'm currently not. The next thing, always, it's how I've always been. And then I'll dwell on the past. I'm like, you know, walk out of here. How did I do? What did I say? Should I have said this better? Should I not have? And anything that reframes me to right in the moment is what fills that cup for me. Totally. I think I learned it over time. I'm 48. As I've gotten older, as I've sort of moved into that. You're young still. Oh. <laughs> you, you said 100 years ago, you're still young. I feel so young, but that's nice of you to say. I think for me, it became something. Yeah, it's a stillness. It's a moment to think, because look, I pro I'm prone to anxiety. Being good at this work, it makes it tough. And you can definitely overthink things. I think earlier in my career, I would second guess things. Should I have done this differently? I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that so loud. I shouldn't have done all those things. I, over time, have been able to let go of some of those things. And I also have learned some degree of accountability. I'm okay to walk in and be like, I probably shouldn't have said that. Sorry if that didn't land well with you. What I really meant was whatever. But being able to own the moments where you're maybe not communicating as best as you can alleviates a large degree of that anxiety around wondering whether or not something landed well. And often when I say things like, hey, I hope you understood what I was saying and it, you didn't take offense, the person looks at me like, oh yeah, I didn't even notice, right? Whereas if I had walked out of the room and been like, they think I meant they should do that right now or they, do they think I want them to reorganize something? 
I have found often that my worst enemy in those moments is myself and the inner dialogue I run with myself around what I think I may have done versus just going to the person and being like, hey, I hope what I said landed well with you. You understood it. I'm really trying to accomplish this. And that clarity sort of moves through things like that. And yeah, that makes sense. And I haven't read your resume for the audience yet, but you're an absolute badass. And I suspect that over time, correct me if I'm wrong, but as you've gone up in your career, your words matter more. That was something to learn. Yes, yes. Your, ma- your words matter more. You say an idea and people stop working on something and start working on something else. <laughs> that was a real lesson for me. I was like, no, no, no. I'm just thinking, is this an idea? Right. And then all of a sudden the team's running off and building something that I was just kind of ideating on. So I've gotten really clear with like, listen, we're just brainstorming. Don't do anything based on this. We're just going to talk about how this may work, what we might want to think about versus go execute this or tell me what this looks like or spike on this or whatever. So I think generally words matter more now than they have in a long time. I think that we, as a, certainly when I started in tech, that words didn't matter as much as they do now. I don't think we were quite as evolved to a certain degree when we thought about just the workplace, the people in the workplace, how we talk about the work, how we talk to people doing the work. I think that we have gotten a bit better at that. But I 100% agree with you. Words matter so much. They matter so much than you even think they do. And especially as you rise up in your career, people take a lot of stock and put a lot of stock into what you say. One of the other things that I get in hot water for, I always have, is I'm very direct, very direct. I just don't know any other way to be. And so if I think something, it almost always comes out of my mouth. Unless it's obviously really bad. Like if I think you should get fired, I probably won't say that to your face. But I'm very direct. And people often misinterpret that as an attack on them rather than me being very direct about something that I see because I want the best for whatever it is, the idea that we're trying to construct, the goal that we're trying to achieve, you and your career. I'm just very direct about whatever it is. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I have that big time. (laughs) I have worked very hard to anchor my directness in kindness. So I do try to be like, listen, I'm going to give you some feedback right now. We're going to have a conversation about something. Some parts of it might be uncomfortable. My objective here is to help you help the business, whatever the things might be. So I have learned to anchor it a bit more, but I too am very direct and it's part of what makes me great. And sometimes it makes things harder because people do take offense. People are not accustomed to getting incredibly direct feedback. And instead of sometimes it's often hard for them to take a step back and look at the feedback outside of themselves versus feeling like, you're coming at me. 100%. And that's hard, right? I couldn't agree more. You don't want anyone to feel attacked, but I also, I can't do my job if I can't tell you what I'm seeing and we can't discuss what's going on in a way that helps us move the business forward or moves the person forward. And I would, I would even take that a step further, which is to say that you got hired in order to be very direct about the observations that you have in a business. Yeah, absolutely. My job is to seek out the truth. And that truth lives all over the organization in nooks and crannies and at the highest level. But I basically, as COO, spend all my time trying to figure out what's the truth. And so people feel exposed in that process. People feel like they're being looked at or scrutinized or something, which in some instances they are. But my intentions are good. And I'm really trying to fix the business. It's not really something about you. But if you are part of the reason why the business isn't doing or moving to the next step, we're going to have that conversation. Yeah. The best I've ever seen are the ones that embrace it. The best I've ever seen in every shape and form are the ones that seek it, crave it, 
cherish it. Those like, are the ones you want, right? Oh yeah. But you don't often get a whole team of those. Oh, never. Right? I, I've never had it. Yeah. More often than not, you get a lot of people that want to be told they're doing a good job yep. and pat it on the back, yep. which everyone likes. But as you raise up and you rise up in your career, it's a lot less you're doing a good job and a lot more problem after problem. Mm -hmm. You know, your job is to work with problems. I always make this joke, like at my level, I'm rarely choosing between two good things, right? Like I'm typically choosing between two meh kind of things. Because if you're choosing between good things, all the people that work for me can make those choices. Yeah. You know, it's when things start getting a little more Mickey and hard. Yeah that those decisions bubble up to me. So if most of my profession and most of what I do professionally is choose between two sort of meh ways of going, that makes it so that I have to have a really direct conversation with people because I have to ask how we got here, what the ramifications of doing one versus the other are, how it's going to work, what this might affect in a different way. So I do think through the work, I've managed to create a very direct dialogue around the actual work that, Often I can parlay into individual feedback, but it still takes work. Can I read your resume back to you? <laughs> sure. Okay. It's awesome. First of all, Davis. Yeah, you do. <laughs> I mean, go on. That, that pumped me up. You got a double major in international relations in French. Mm -hmm. Then you went to the Peace Corps. Yep. You came back and technology had hit the world mm -hmm. in the couple of years that you were there. You make a funny joke about how all your friends were driving Mercedes and oh, you're yeah. like, what oh, the yeah. hell? Oh yeah, I was living in a mud hut in the middle of West Africa and email happened and the internet happened. And then I came home, I grew up here in Berkeley, so I came home to my hometown and I couldn't rent a studio apartment without my dad co-signing and all my friends from college were driving Mercedes and Lexus. And I was like in a Datsun 810 trying to figure out what happened. Oh man, so then you became a pro product manager at uh, Utron? Yeah, so Utron was an Italian software company that was spinning off a little division of their hardware with an incubator in San Francisco, and I got hired as employee number one and then rose up. Got it. Okay. And then you went to Vivint Corp as a product manager, Evolve as a product manager. Those were each two-year runs, and I think maybe there's some acquisitions. They were all acquired. All acquired. Okay. And then you went to Primavera yep. as the director of product management and product marketing, and then were you concurrently getting your MBA at USF? Yeah. So I went to school at night. My husband was in law school. So I was working my husband through law school. And then I got my MBA at night while I was working full time. Got it. Then you end up at Salesforce. This was in <laughs> 2008. You were the director of product marketing for AppExchange and then senior director of marketing and alliances, also for AppExchange. And then you were the VP of partner operations. This is still within the AppExchange mm -hmm. org. Then you became the uh, GM and SVP of desk.com, which I think in Salesforce parlance means you're basically the CEO of desk.com. Yep. Two years of that, then the EVP of AppExchange again, yep. little homecoming, and then the EVP of mobile for a year, correct? This is mm -hmm. until yep. 2019. Then you co-founded the Operator Collective, and you did that for two years. And then you joined Ironclad as the COO in September of 21. You're also on the boards of SetSail, the UC Berkeley College of Engineering, Girls Who Code, the Black Venture Institute, which you're also a co-founder of. I guess you're also on the board of the Operator Collective once you step down to go to Ironclad, yep. correct? You were formerly on the board of Proofpoint for two years and then on the board of Zero with an X for four years. Yep. Did and you get to know Rachel Powell while you were at Zero? Do you yeah, know who that I is? I did meet her. She's I was a, on the advisory board. She's so amazing. She is. There's so many amazing people at that, that company. That company 
is a sneaky legit company. It is a sneaky legit company. Talk about a good culture. It is. And they came up, they're Australian too. So yeah. they're not, I mean, and they came to the US. Yeah, they've, they're amazing. Your mother is from Turkey. Mm-hmm. Your dad's from Austria. Mm-hmm. You grew up in Berkeley. You're mm-hmm. a mother to two boys. I've heard that your mom was an awesome, eclectic sculptor, that your dad was a patent lawyer for George Lucas. Is that true? Yeah, well, he was a patent lawyer for Townsend and Townsend, but yes, he did work for George Lucas. He did some of the early patents on Star Wars, which of course, I'm a big Star Wars fan. So naturally, my dad doesn't even really understand what Star Wars is still, which is funny. So you started as employee number one at Utron. Is that correct? And I was listening to a podcast that you gave It was June of 2020, right when the pandemic was at its most scary, unknown point. And the host asked you, Layla, what are you talking? At this time, you were in venture. She said, what are you advising your portfolio to do? And you said, hunker down. There's a lot of uncertainty that's ahead of us. And what you said was that there's a lot of Herman Miller chairs and and couches that are in these offices right now that those perks might be going away and it's time to just focus on the business. And then you said, I've been at that startup before when all of a sudden the valuation did not match where the business was. Where was, I was very curious, where yeah. was that? Because um, I've never heard that. So that you. was at Evolve. Listen, that was the late 90s and we were definitely all sitting in Herman Miller chairs and drinking $4 juices. They're $10 now, but back then they were $4, which felt crazy. And IPOing, living really high on the hog, feeling really good. And then it sort of busted. And I remember actually like wheeling the Herman Miller chairs out for the repo guy to pick them up. And like- You're selling them. Yeah, we sold them to make money. It was getting a little desperate. We were not meeting our goals. We'd gone public- Stock dropped down, dropped down, dropped down. It was a really bad situation. And ultimately we sold it to Primavera. But yeah, it was rough going for a second there. And if I'm honest, it sort of smells like that's coming again. I don't think it'll be quite at the same velocity as what happened in the 90s. But the next 18 months, I mean, if you hear people talking venture or anywhere, people are sort of hunkering down, if you will, or at least taking a second look at giant valuations and companies that are later stage and where they are in their growth cycle. A lot of those metrics are coming back to play from a investor perspective, as well as from a company perspective on how we're looking at long-term growth. And right now for the audience that's listening, maybe in 10 years from now, we are in April of 2022. Is that right? End of March? Almost, Almost April, two days to April. Of 2022. Yeah. And we have started to see the very, very early innings of companies resizing the valuations that they took. Instacart was kind of the early, early tell. Is that right? Yeah. And I think we're seeing it in lots of other places. We're also seeing interesting consolidation in private equity. I mean, the Anaplan deal last week. There's lots of interesting things happening, which is why, from my perspective, focus on the work, make the customers happy, build the right software, explain to people what it does and get it in people's hands as fast as possible. But, you know, right now it's about execution. And those are going to be the companies that survive and actually grow. You have to execute this year. This year is not about pomp and circumstance. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Very personal. Bring it. Do you still have an answering machine? (laughs) Okay. Listen, as much as I work with technology and am a technology executive, I personally am not great with technology. 
So I have an answering machine and most embarrassingly it goes off in the middle of Zoom calls sometimes and people are like, what is that? I'm like, that's my answering machine. The only people that call me on the answering machine are Long's Drugs and my mom. But whatever I do, I have an answering machine. I still write checks for like my bills, like my PG&E bill. <laughs> I write checks. No way. Yeah, I do. I actually like writing checks. I like that paperwork and stamping and all that. You really are a I COO. Really, yeah, you... it's really, I do like that weird paperwork kind of stuff. Can I ask you like a more topical question? Sure. Which is that one of the things as I've gotten to know you through the work and research that I've done is that you've done, and we're going to get to this, some very, very amazing, serious things in your life but you do not take yourself too seriously. That's a very unique balance that I don't see many people strike, which is you fought for equal pay for women at Salesforce. That went like to the White House. Like you've done some very serious things in your life. They're like very, very significant in the world. But like along the way, we're both trying to not say f*** this entire podcast. You know, like there's just this really cool balance. How do you strike that balance? Listen, I don't think I'm any better than anyone else. I've lived in this world of technology for a while, and there were moments where I thought my time was more valuable, what I was doing was more important. I will say I am very pleased with my partner. My husband's a very grounded person that keeps me very grounded. But in general, like, I don't really want to be some douchey, look at me, Silicon Valley person. I just want to make things better than they were, right? That's sort of my main objective in all moments. Like, I really don't like it when things are unfair. That makes me crazy. And I really feel like my job as a person, especially given all the good fortune I've had and all the things that have happened to me, are to make wherever I am better. That's my job. So if it's the company, make the company better, more performant. If it's equal pay, make the company more fair, make it more equal. Like underneath it all, I'm a product manager, right? So everything I'm doing is a next best action. Like when I think about a problem, the main thing I think is like, okay, what is my best next action in this problem? What's the best thing I can do next that will have the biggest impact? And you know, when you're building product, that's often how you think about it. What's the next best action for the customer? What's the next thing that will make their life easier if the product serves something up? And I think I've just applied that to my life. I also, I genuinely don't think I'm better than anyone. I'm glad I got into tech and I'm glad I was successful. I really wanted to be a history teacher to begin with. So that would have been a fine path as well. But I am not one of those people that thinks that just because I made money, I'm somehow better than everybody else. Where do you think this, you said it yourself, I really do not like when things are unfair. Where does that come from? I think because I was first generation and my parents were immigrants, a lot of growing up was confusing. You know, like we would trick my mom and be like, the cereal with the pictures on it is healthy. You know, she'd fall for it. We'd buy Lucky Charms. Mm -hmm. She'd think she's buying us Cheerios or some stuff. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of moments (laughs) growing up where my parents, you know, and my parents were working so hard. Like they were working so hard so we could be in America so that we would be safe. So I think a lot of it started there, right? And just kind of orienting down in that way. In general, I think sometimes people in Silicon Valley and just in tech in general get really wrapped up in it. And I have too. I have gotten really wrapped up in the job and really wrapped up in myself in the job at different Like your title equals your self-worth type thing. Oh, like, and I'm so much more important than everyone. And what I'm doing is so important and how I'm thinking is so important. You know, if you live in an echo chamber long enough where everyone is mesmerized by themselves, it's easy to get into that cycle as well. 
I really didn't like who I was becoming when I was rolling down that road. And I had lots of interesting conversations and I started doing different things. Like I started, I set a reading goal for myself. At one point I realized all I talked about was software and my kids, which is pretty boring unless you're my husband and my parents or someone that works in software with me, right? If you're my friend who's a plumber or a teacher, you want to talk about my kids for a minute. You don't care about my software. You just want to have fun, talk about current events, whatever. So it was at a certain moment and I was having a dialogue with my husband and he was like, listen, you know, you're kind of hard right now. This is the way it is. And so he broke it down for oh, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Honest with you. Yeah. Well, it took me a minute to get ready, but then I like got ready and took my phone out and was like, I'm not going to say anything. You're just going to tell me what it feels like to live with me. And I'm going to write it all down on my phone. No and kidding. I'm not going to say anything. And he did. So he told me all these things. Can you share any of the things? Yeah, like one of them was you think your time is more valuable than everyone else's. Which and what's an example of that? Like. No, I can't pick the kid up I got because work. I got to do this call. There's no call more important than picking up my kid. There isn't. Someone's got to pick up my kid. I got to go pick up my kid. But I was very much in the notion that like my work was, I had to do this first. This was more important. Other things like how I think about spending time, I'm always thinking about work, not present, right? Not to your point about being present in the moment there and at the dinner table, but really thinking about the pricing project or the deal we have to close or how this feature is going to come online. So after that conversation, I made some changes, right? And some of them were really basic, like reading. I was like, I, I'm goal-oriented and competitive. So I was like, I'm going to read 50 books this year, you know, after reading like three a year for the past 10 years. And so that started me prioritizing reading over like checking email for the hundredth time, seeing if one new one came in. Because I'll do that. I'll check my phone 16 times in 10 minutes, think, waiting for any, you know, I just get in a zone where I'm kind of waiting for the next thing to come in so I can react to it. Another thing was pictures. Like I'd always taken pictures growing up and I just sort of stopped. You know, I had kids and I was working at Salesforce and I was super busy. And so I was like, I want to take pictures again, but then I don't know what to put. So I started this thing where I put one picture up on Instagram every day and I don't write anything and there's nothing about it. It's just a creative outlet for me to keep taking pictures and keep trying to look for things. So I built some things in along the way that, became different kind of hobbies and habits that I think helped me stay a little bit grounded and take it a little less seriously. Yeah. I think if I was being honest with myself, just hearing you say that, I've probably experienced the same thing. And during COVID, I started traveling and everyone's stuck at home. And I was like, well, I'm not going to stay at home. I can go travel. I can't go to the office. I don't have anything tying me down here. And I was doing like really cool shit. And I would post about it on Instagram and I was going everywhere, right? I'm very privileged, I'm very fortunate, and I get to do cool things. And maybe two months in, I looked at myself one day. First of all, I'm alone, which is never as fun as doing things with somebody else that matters to you. Second of all, I'm like, why do I care so much that other people know where I am and what I'm doing right now? Got rid of my Instagram, haven't had it for over two years now. I have not had FOMO since the minute that I deleted my Instagram. And I didn't understand why for months that I never experienced this feeling anymore of not giving a shit what anybody else was doing and nobody else was caring what I was doing until I realized, I was like, oh my God, it's my Instagram. Right. Really cool. Anyway, so I really- No, I just, it's, I mean, I think it's important. And for me, Instagram, like I never post pictures that I take on the day. Yeah. Like I just post, like I'm totally. doing women's history right now. So every picture is of a woman, right? Like I make up these own little things for me. But yeah, I think, look, social media can be very damaging. It can be super impactful and awesome, but it also can 
shift how you feel about yourself. And anytime I feel like that's starting to happen, I change my habits. Yeah, smart. I'm going to skip to Salesforce because we have a lot to get through. Sure. Well, you had an amazing run there professionally in your career. And I think one of the cooler things that you've talked about that you did is the work that you did around the initiatives with women and equal pay. And it started with Mark Benioff wanting to elevate the women in the company. And I think he started out by putting a rule in place that if there was a meeting, 30% of the people in the Mm -hmm. meeting had to be female. Is that right? And then it became this thing where he wanted more female executives that were more empowered at higher levels of the company. And so you and a woman named Cindy Robbins, who ultimately became the chief people People officer officer Mm -hmm. of Salesforce, then for a year went on to figure out what could you do to tackle equality in the workplace for men and women. And I think the lowest hanging fruit or maybe the highest order bit that you saw was compensation. Yeah. So I grew up in product management, as we discussed, and I was often the only woman in the room, right? Or there was me and one other. It was very product management, often men, right? So the equal pay idea came to me because I noticed some things. One of them was we had a product leadership meeting and I noticed in one product leadership meeting, I was the only one. I didn't notice that. I was used to that. But they were all talking about buying Teslas. And this was right when Tesla had come out. So it was like 250K a pop. There was no reasonable version. And everyone was sitting around like how they were on this wait list waiting for their Tesla. And I remember thinking at the time, I, mean, I could buy a Tesla, but that would be so stupid to spend for me to spend that kind of money on a car. I'm also a terrible driver, but that's a different topic. So it, I got in my head, are they making more money than me? They didn't come from family money. I knew them all personally. And these are your peers. Peers. Yeah, my peers. So I got in my head. Then I was running desk. We did very well. I had four direct reports. Two were men, two were women. All of them had worked at the company for over five years. So they were established folks at the company that had done great work. And we had a banner year. We blew it out. And so I was doing the annual compensation stock, all that stuff. And I'd gone to corporate and said, look, I really want big chunks for these people. They've just worked absolutely as hard as people could work. And so corporate gave me a big chunk. And then I I had a moment where I thought, how am I going to divide this up? And I thought, I'm going to divide it equally. There was one person who was my COO who I thought maybe I should give that person a bit more. But then I said, no, no, I'm just going to divide it equally and I'm going to give it to them. So then my assistant sets up the review meetings and it just happens that the two women executives went first. That was just the way the schedule went. So first woman executive walks in. I tell her what a great job she's done. I give her this package, which is bigger than any she's ever gotten before. Oh, Layla, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so happy. I love my job. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I feel good. She feels good. It's great. Second woman executive, same thing. Oh, Layla, I love my job. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm happy, she's happy. I feel like a good boss. She feels like a rewarded employee. It's all going great. Then the first man walks in. Again, more money and comp than any of them had ever gotten at the company by a good amount. And the man looks at me and says, I want more. And I I was like, oh, what? Like in my head, I was like, need a new one of these, need a new senior executive in this role, because what's this person talking about? We got through the meeting and I was sort of like, you know, I wasn't really, I don't understand that. Then I got to the final person who was the one, my COO, basically the person I was running the business with and gave him his package. And he looked at me and said, I want more. And I stopped the meeting because we were the close. And I was like, okay, your review is over. We're going to have a conversation. And I'm like, why are you asking me for more money right now? 
I just gave you more money than you've ever gotten. Why are you asking me for more money? And he looked at me and he said, I always ask for more money. Don't you? And I felt like someone slapped me in the face because no, I had not always asked for more money. I was taught that when someone gives you something, you say, thank you, whether you like it or not, <laughs> you know, you say, thank you. I had never moved to the place where I thought what was being given to me was something I had earned raises and promotions and stock grants. All of that self felt like something was being gifted to me and I should be thankful and happy for it. So once that happened, I was like, okay, something's rotten in Denmark. Something's wrong. And was your perspective at first initially that the men are being greedy, why are they taking for granted what they have? Did you come to a perspective where, wait, why aren't the women no. also like this? At first I thought, what are these men doing? Right. But when my COO looked at me and was like, I always do this. Do you realize why don't women also do it that It was too? much more, I mean, I, I wish I was thinking more broadly. I actually was just thinking why about myself. And right, I was like, right, right. what, what, what? Yeah. Why did I didn't ask for more money? I didn't ask for more ever. Yeah. Not one of the times did I go back and ask for more. I always just assumed I was being taken care of. But then I applied it out and I thought about the two women who had come into the meeting before and been so happy and thankful yeah. and, you know, felt like they'd gotten something. And then I went to Cindy and I said, listen, because Cindy and I had been talking, we had both gotten promoted out of Mark's program he put together and we'd been talking about what's the next thing we should do. And we had three ideas. Well, we had a couple ideas, but we eventually landed on three ideas. I went to her and said, we have to go after equal pay. And, you know, she's the head of HR. So she was like, I don't know, Layla. We got to think about this. So we spent a year working on a proposal and a plan and doing a lot of research. What was the trepidation around equal pay? Because it wasn't just her that was nervous Listen, about that. Listen, equal pay, this hadn't been done before. This all feels normal now because we did that. We had no idea what kind of exposure we would have in the company. And Salesforce is a publicly traded company. You can't just pull $10 million out of the operating budget and right. be like, wing, we're done. So if you look at some of the early messaging Mark even did around this before we had finished the audit, it says, we'll do whatever it takes. We'll take as much time as it takes to fix this. If it takes a year, if it takes five years, if it takes 10 years, because we genuinely didn't know what we were going to uncover. And it was a risk to the company. So Mark Benioff was amazing. And it could have made him look really shitty. It could have been scary. It could have been bad news. I mean, what if it had been a really big number? Right. And then the thing about doing an audit like this is once you look at it, you have to fix it. It's not like you can, Cindy always made this joke, like you can't pop the hood, see that the engine's broken, shut the hood and keep driving the car. Yeah, yeah. Like it's not, that's not how it works. So, and it had never been done. There was no pay audit. We had no workbook to follow. We had nothing. This was all very fresh new territory. So we went to Mark with three asks. One was equal pay and the audit, which obviously Cindy led because she was the head of people in HR. I wanted to start a mentoring program in engineering and product because there were a lot of women, but they weren't rising up the same way. So we put that in place. And then the third thing we did was we put a women's conference together next to Dreamforce, which now sounds normal, but you have to know that at the time there had never been a day of programming at a software conference focused on women. You know, there was Fortune's Most Powerful Women. There were conferences for women, but never had a software company said, we're going to dedicate a portion of our user conference towards talking about this as a topic and women in tech and professionally. So, you know, I will forever be indebted to Mark Benioff because he was awesome. And he said, go, 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 go do them all. I'm 100% behind you. And then we did. And it became a life-changing experience across the board. 
not just for me and Cindy and Mark, but also for the whole company and really for tech and corporate America in general, because now equal pay is a term that everyone's comfortable saying. When I first said it, no one was saying it. One of the things that you said that very much resonated with me, you said you can't be what you can't see. And the more we can show people all the different permutations of how they can live their lives and have their career, the more diversity we'll have. And I thought that was a very good framing, man or woman, of how I think about life. There's so many examples that the Zoom CRO frames it similarly. He calls it belief barriers. And oftentimes, a belief barrier is broken just when you see someone else do it. Yeah. And I've seen it. I'm also not like, I've, I guess I've been first on a couple of these things, yeah. which has helped. But I do believe that in the process of working through this, like at a certain point, my job stopped being a job and it became a mission at Salesforce when yep. we were really deep in this and, and equal pay was not common. And, you know, we had the first chief diversity officer. We were first to a lot of these moments in tech. I saw that I had a platform that was bigger than me or Salesforce. I saw that we could do something that would actually impact a wide swath of people. And back to how I think about things, like I really just want to make things better. Whatever better is defined at and more equal is always better in my book. Yep. And this movement went deep, like went to the White House. Yeah. Did you go to the White House? Yeah, yeah. I went to the White House. We met the president. It, it was Cindy spoke on a panel. We hosted an Oscar dinner, like an Academy Award dinner at Patricia Arquette's house with Reese Witherspoon and Elon Musk and Stevie Wonder. And, you know, it became quite something. It, it became a movement. We became part of this movement and we linked arms with the other women and men that were in this movement. And we brought the company. I mean, it's great that Salesforce was so forward thinking and we could bring the company along on that journey. Very cool. Really, really cool. So I have some questions specifically about the job stuff. So when you were the CEO of desk.com, it was a big job that ultimately they end of life to the product. Am I, mis am I wrong? No, there? you're right. That was my and, idea. And it was your idea. Yeah. What do you mean it was your idea? Listen, we had a lot of different things that we bought at Salesforce. And at that point, that product was run on a different platform. And at, up until that moment, Salesforce had run everything on a proprietary platform. You know, we had our own systems running the service. There was no public infrastructure when we started. Desk was run on AWS. It was sort of a different model and it was relatively new at that time. So not one we were as familiar with. And that particular TAM at that time in the company's history was our biggest TAM. And that's changed because they've acquired a number of other companies. But we felt like we needed a product on the low end that was built on our core technology that ran across both sales and support. A lot of other companies were doing that motion, and so we felt like we needed it. So my proposal back to Product Council was we rebuild some portion of this and some portion of a low-end sales product and launch it as a joint product, which is now what Salesforce Essentials is. Did you hire Sarah Varney? past guest of the show into desk.com. Yes, I did. She said, by the way, she's still eternally grateful to you. And she's a dear friend of yours and she's the best. But you hired her five months in to pregnancy yep. to be the CMO of desk.com. Yep. And, and everyone told me not to hire. I mean, I got a lot of people being like, and you the reason they told you not to hire her is because, hey, she's leaving in yeah, three she's months. She's about to have a baby. And then she's going to be gone for another right. three, four months. Right. Listen, Sarah is special. And for me, the fact that she was pregnant wasn't really a factor for me. Of course, she's pregnant and she'll take her time. 
she was amazing. Like what she pulled off was amazing. And you know, she took too small of a maternity leave probably on that one. I will be honest. It was her third kid. So we were a little quick, but for me, who I work with has everything to do with the work. But isn't it hard, like even desk.com, like ultimately you recruited Sarah, you recruited probably a bunch of other friends. You're the CEO of this BU. This is a serious business. And then you end of life it? Well, we didn't just end of life it. Yeah, yeah. We ran it for a good three years and grew it and got it really big and really competitive. But the thing about desk, and I think this is true of every company, we were part of a bigger whole. So although I was very focused on desk, I was more focused on Salesforce. Yeah. Like my job, I'm an executive at Salesforce. I run desk and I'm going to run desk as well as I possibly can, but everything in the pursuit of the goal for the core company. And if that means I have to take a knee or I have to do some things sometimes that maybe aren't as comfortable, so be it. Also, no one on my team was surprised. I'm an open leader. So it wasn't like I walked in one day and was like, hey, this is what's happening. We had worked the plan yeah. and thought through all the best permutations for the business, for Salesforce, for the customers for the employees. And I will say in that motion, we didn't have anyone a trit. We moved all of the desk.com employees into core Salesforce and different functions. And they stayed for a lot of them. They're still there, but they stayed well over a year. So it was well done as far as something like that can be. I've heard you say a quote that also deeply resonated with me, which was that what people love about Salesforce is how innovative it is. What people hate about it is how much change there is. This is my, this, we used to be doing employee surveyed at Salesforce well before everyone else was employee surveying. And every year we would get the results. And the top thing people liked was how innovative and how we changed and did awesome things. And the top thing they hated was how much things changed. And for me, that was just so funny because just two sides of the same coin. And that's, by the way, that's every company. Yeah. Like that's every fast growing company. It's every company in our portfolio. That's tech. If you're doing it right. Change is really difficult for people. Like I do remember times at Salesforce and other companies having to shelve huge amounts of code that we'd been working on for months because some other priority came up. And when you don't release code, it dies, right? It's very difficult to keep code on the side and not put it into production and like not move it through the process. So there were tough decisions along the way. But I think the key thing with running anything in a company is to remember that although you may be super passionate and care so much, and I always do. I care way too much about everything I do professionally and the people that work for me. Like I think about them all the time. I worry about them. But all of that is in the pursuit of the corporate goal, right? And you can't lose sight of that as an executive, even if it means that the thing you're doing may not end up the way you had originally visualized because it's better for the company if it zigs versus zags. It's amazing how many times, and I've said this before on the show, but how many times I have seen people quit what was going to be the craziest ride of their life, hands down, that you have been dreaming of. Everybody in their career waits for a sales force in 2010, and all of a sudden, the change becomes so overwhelming. It's not what they expected it to feel like, but it's always the ride that they wanted. It just doesn't feel that way, and they don't know it. And they can't see the forest from the trees because the change is so disruptive to their internal state that they don't know what to do. And what they start thinking, I don't know if you agree with this, is that the ball never bounces their way. Whenever there is change, the ball is somehow always getting tipped to the other team, not to them, and they leave. There's a really prevalent victim mindset all throughout corporate America, but certainly in tech, where people 
It's sort of the joke I was just making with the like people love change and people love the innovation and they hate the change. Like, I think people get stuck in a victim triangle where they start talking about woe is me. This is happening to me. Why is it? Anytime anyone asks himself, why is this happening to me? They're not really owning the whole situation. They're sort of looking at it from a victim mentality. It's hard not to do that, right? It takes a lot of work and effort to move out of that. But I do think that really successful people can remove the chaos of change in work from their own self-value. They can remove the fact that maybe even they have to throw away some work every now and then, which is painful and hard. That's how it goes. Yep. Somebody else told me, I asked them, where does Layla spike? Like, where is she off the charts? And the answer that I got that didn't surprise me, but was quite interesting, which was taking someone who's good at their job, finding these people, polishing them off, and then making them stars. And I asked, how does she do that? And the answer was by building up their confidence when they didn't otherwise have it. And this person told me that she is exceptional at finding people who have through the roof skill, but don't have the confidence and just need to be empowered. Do you agree with that? Well, that's really nice. Super flattering. Such a nice thing. Super flattering. (laughs) Very nice thing to hear. You know, I just think I was underestimated my whole life, right? I was chubby. I was dyslexic. I just think my whole life I was sort of underestimated. So somewhere along the line, I built up my own confidence dream, which is real. Sometimes it's a little BS, but it's real. But I think for me, I've always just looked for folks like me, like smart people that maybe are overlooked, smart people that maybe don't have the words, aren't quite as articulate, but when you read their reports or their emails, they're incredibly smart. And I think as far as finding people, I mean, that's such a nice thing to say. I feel like I've been very lucky. And the other thing is, I'm always looking for people. I am an emotionally led leader, not in that I'm like crying all the time, although I do cry. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I'll cry at work sometimes. I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. I guess I look for the underestimated people because that's who I was my whole life. I was underestimated or just people didn't assume much was going to happen there. So I think I've been lucky in that I've looked for those folks. And then the honest truth is, There's so many, so many smart people and all they need is just a little cheerleading and a little like push that way, push this way. And they do it on their own. I don't think I actually do that much for them other than a little guidance and a little push. Someone asked you, it's one of these questions that I both love and hate, which is if you were talking to the 30 year old version of Layla, what would you answer? And I, the answer actually surprised me, so I wanted to dig into it, which was that you said I should have been more confident in myself. I'm actually quite insecure in my own weird way. So if I just had a bit more confidence, probably things wouldn't have taken a toll on me like they did. So there's two parts of that answer that I wanted to unpack. One is I'm actually quite insecure in my own weird way. Oh, yeah. What is your own weird way? Well, first of all, I, I have yet to meet anyone in technology that's an executive that isn't insecure. It drives they might them. be a little act a little sociopathic and act like they don't have it, but... Yes, I'm terribly insecure. I think everyone is to some degree. I I think people manifest it in different ways, but I've certainly lived a lot of my professional life doubting whether or not I'm doing the right thing. Do I know what I'm doing? Am I making the right decision? So that doubt, which often we were talking earlier, will breed some degree of anxiety, has been a co-pilot for a lot of my career. And I do think if I just been a little more confident in myself, been a little more like, you know what to do. You, you know the right thing to do. Do you think you could have pushed yourself in the same way without that doubt and anxiety and insecurity? Like, don't you think that there's something, some fuel that you can use that for 
weaponize Absolutely. it in a positive way. Absolutely. And I do. I think I definitely do. But there were other tolls. Like I gained a lot of weight. Yeah. I drank too much. Like I did, you know, not anything out of hand, but I just used other crutches to try to make up for things when I was feeling bad, where I think that if I had felt a little more confident, maybe I could have meditated, which is stuff I do now, mm-hmm. or done yoga or gone to other wells to replenish myself. Totally agree. You left Salesforce after you became the EVP of mobile. Salesforce's mobile strategy was just kind of whatever, ultimately. Is that we fair? were working on it. So we did some interesting things that year. We brokered a pretty interesting relationship with Apple yeah. where we were doing swift work on Salesforce and some stuff. But, you know, Salesforce started before mobile was a thing. Like we were just getting on Blackberries yeah. when Salesforce started. So there was some interesting stuff to do. But yeah, it was a move away from running revenue. So I had run revenue for the company for a very long time and running mobile was going back into product. That makes sense. So then you left. Did you think you were going to retire? <laughs> I don't want to retire. I am get very bored. But yes, I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I was going to take a very long break and do some reflecting. I thought I was going to teach. I was going to go teach at Cal. That was why I joined the board of engineering school. Like that was gearing up for a different motion when I was working at Salesforce, I helped them acquire north of 50 companies because anytime we bought a company, it impacted the app exchange. So I was definitely brought into that scenario. And one of the things I had seen was a lot of folks were bought and came in and worked for us for a couple of years and then left after a couple of years and became venture capitalists. And they would leave and then they would call the other executives, often the male executives in the company and say, hey, be an LP in my fund, be an advisor to this company, angel invest in that company. And no one was calling me. So finally, one of the co-founders of Desk left to become a venture capitalist. And I said, hey, you're going to call me. I have some money. I want to get in on this. What's happening? And so I joined his fund and they went early into Robinhood and it was very successful. And so for me, it almost triggered an income inequality thing again. Like, wait a second, this isn't fair. All the guys have been doing this on the side while I've been like just grinding it out at work and no side hustle, none of this. So when I left Salesforce, that was very much on my mind. And I had actually tried. I talked to my friend, April Underwood, who started Hashtag Angels and a couple of other people earlier trying to figure out if there were a way for a group of executive women to pool their money and invest. But we were also busy and I conflicted out of everything because I ran the app exchange. And so it was like, what are we doing here? So I met Malin, my partner, Malin Yen, and she had started Operator Collective. So she had the idea. She was raising money. I joined up with her and we raised more money than she had initially planned. So we raised a $50 million fund. What's interesting about that fund is that 90% of the people in that fund are operating executives. A lot of them current operating executives, or actually 100% of them, 9% of them are women. 40% are people of color. So it was a model that was trying to crack a problem that I had already been part of firsthand and been agitated with. Those are always the easiest things for me. I already know this is a problem, even when like I'm looking at deals. Like if someone pitches me a software for a problem I've had, I'm like, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. How are you fixing the problem differently? So yeah, listen, moving into venture was super interesting. I feel like I've played for both teams now and now I'm really lethal. First fund went pretty good, deployed it. Second fund comes around and the way for those listening that don't know how venture works, especially early stage venture, is that when you're in, it takes a long time and you got to see it through because of the way that the economics start to compound on itself is that it vests not like a normal company over two to four mm-hmm. years. It is eight to 10 years. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the economics just get more and more as you start to stack funds. However, your timeline just continues to elongate. Yep. 
in a corresponding way to how long you need to be at the firm for. Absolutely. Right? And so you were like, well, am I going to do this for another eight, eight, 10 years? Right. And basically that was it. I mean, I loved it and I love Operator Collective. I'm super proud of what we built, but I... Look, the honest truth is after the pandemic, I think we all did a lot of reflection and I'm not even sure it's after, right? But like throughout the pandemic. And one of the things that became very obvious to me was I missed work. I found venture a little lonely. And even though I had a great team and a great partner, I like the community of working in a company and working with multiple teams on problems. So I was already itching that way. And venture for me, I will always do venture. I angel invest all the time. I'll always have my foot in some part of this, but I really missed operationalizing and doing work. I also got a little tired of giving founders advice and then having them not listen to me and then come back in six months and be like, I made this mistake. And I'm like, well, okay, then let's do it this way. And then they make the same mistake. Like I already have kids. I already have a whole bunch of people that don't listen to me. I don't need more people asking for my advice and not taking it. I I already made two people that do that to me all day long. So I was getting a little frustrated with that too. (laughs) And you don't know how much that resonates with me. I mean, sitting here in the Kleiner office, I get it. Trust me, I get it inside and out. How did you end up at Ironclad? So we invested early in Ironclad. It was one of my first investments. One of the first investments we did at Operator Collective. Contract management software has always irritated me because people have always built it in service to a different business process. So built it for the Salesforce user to have contracts on the side or the procurement user to have contracts on the side. The interesting thing about all enterprise software is it's only as good as the data in it, right? And if you build your software on core objects that are constantly changing, it's hard for it to keep up to date and keep good. So contracts never change. So by the very nature of the software, you can derive insights in a different way than you can on an object that's say like an opportunity, which is constantly moving through different stages and getting different stuff. It's very difficult to shift a contract. So I was very compelled by the notion of being able to derive meaningful insights from the actual truth in the data, which is the contract. Are we out of line with the customer? Are they overusing entitlement? Like not questioning these things, but seeing them in the data based on the actual thing that everyone agreed to was very exciting to me. I'm also was very compelled by the people at Ironclad. Back to what I was just saying to you earlier, I wanted to work on a team again and I wanted to be on a team with people, smart people that were striving and working on complicated things. And Ironclad really offered all of that. And you knew the CEO, Jason? Very well. So he and I had, we invested in him and I met with him every month for the last two and a half years. You know, we'd have an hour long, how's it going? What do you need? Who are you looking to hire? What's going on in the business? So I also had good purview into what was happening. And he is very special. He's a very special CEO. So I was excited about partnering with him and working together. It was founded in 2014. Today it has over 300 employees, over a thousand customers, including MasterCard, Staples, Peloton, Gensler. It has been funded by, amongst many, Sequoia, Y Combinator, Excel, maybe most recently Franklin Templeton. Mm-hmm. In January, they raised the Series E, $150 million, valuation of $3.2 billion. It has raised over nine rounds, $334 million of funding. Hell of a time to raise that Series E. So it's announced in January, which means you raised it sometime in Q4. Yeah, I give all that credit to my CEO, Jason Thamig. I was very much in the depths of the operations and he was the one that pulled that deal together. But yeah, it was great. And we're we're super thankful. Also really excited about 
Franklin as an investor, you know, they're a public markets investor, so they bring sort of a different perspective. It's been really fun. How does it feel going back after two and a half years? It's so fun. I love it so much. I'm happy. Listen, I, I also am, and you know, I learned a lot in venture. I learned a lot about the way to work and the way not to work. So I'm working to employ those things. But generally, like, I love building software. And maybe people think that's weird, but I really love it. I love thinking about how to fix problems with technology or how to make things work better. So being back in the seat where that is like what I think about when I wake up and what I think about when I go to bed is pretty exciting. I'm having a good time. When you started, it must have been like a couple hundred employees max, right? Like 200 employees. We were a little bigger. So it's been six months. So we were around like 300-ish, a little higher. That's a pretty small company relative to the whole company is probably a fraction of the business that you used to run. The whole company is the size of the team I used to run. Right. And before I left. Right. I mean, Salesforce has, when I left, had 52,000 people. So right. yeah, but look, when I started at Salesforce, it was 1,800 people, you know? So I started at a much smaller company and yes, Salesforce got really big, but for me, Salesforce always felt small. You know, you go up with a cohort. I worked with the same people. I worked on the app exchange for most of my career there. A lot of the same folks. Before Salesforce, I had only worked at startups. So Salesforce was the first and sort of only giant company that I worked for. Before that, it was 200 people, 500 people, 300 people, smaller companies. So I like that because you get to know people a little differently in a smaller company than you do in a big one. What's been the biggest challenge that you faced in your first six months at Ironclad? I think sometimes for me, it's pacing. I have a very fast pace. I can go super fast and I can work. I, I'll outwork problems. That's always been my MO as a human being. Like put a whole pile of things on my desk and I'll just keep working till I get through them. So Learning when outworking problems isn't the right answer. Learning when to step back and watch something happen, even though you may feel like you want it to go down a different way. I think that's been a big part of it. And then ruthlessly prioritizing what needs to happen. Because when you're at a startup the size of Ironclad and you're growing the way we are, there's always stuff to do. And really, if you're really growing well, things are breaking constantly. How do you prioritize? This is where being a product manager all my life comes in real handy, right? Because basically my job when I started off was figuring out how to prioritize stuff. Like when there's so, a million things that you got to do, how do you narrow down the three to five things that are most important in a given week or a month to go get after? Yeah. So look, it's really much falls down into a product management process. I have a set of things that are my priorities, right? And the values that are required. So what's going to move the business forward fast? What do we need to do to keep customers as happy as possible? What do I need to keep employees as happy as possible? Like those three things sort of anchor my decisions, right? Growth, customer happiness, employee happiness. I think about things in relation to how to optimize. If I can do something that fixes all three of those, that sounds like a good thing to maybe take a look Compound at. Compound exercise. Yeah, like yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Often that's not the case and you have to do a number of things. But if you're really smart and really good, you can find those threads that run through all of those things and make progress while doubling down in certain areas in each of them that's required. Well, look, I truly cannot wait to see what you do, who you recruit. I'm surprised Varney isn't already here. Um, Varney and I both have a strong love for bowling, so we should all go bowling. Oh sometime. yeah, you guys are much better than me. Sarah's, no, no, are, Sarah's a really good bowler. I know. It's, it's I know. I think I asked her average. She's really good. She's yeah, like she's, surprising. Yeah, yeah. She's like Flintstones. Good. She's surprisingly good. <laughs> I always conclude these the same way. First, I assume you're hiring for everything. Are there any 
key roles that you want to shout out that are top of mind for you? Totally. So engineers, always looking for great engineers at all levels that want to come and join and build with us. Engineering talent is always top of mind with us. Sales folks, salespeople that are excited, want to sell, we're looking for those. More at a higher level, I'm looking for a VP of services, so someone to really come in and help out with that. But generally, we really are hiring across all functions. So I encourage anyone that's interesting, you can message me on LinkedIn. I respond to LinkedIn. I'm one of those people who I just feel bad not doing it. But yeah, it really a number of different roles open. And really, we're just looking for smart, hardworking people that want to work with us and have the right it's really important that you have the right attitude and you come in with the right sort of freshness when it comes to Ironclad and you have, you know, you're a team player because that's really what we're building. Last question. What does the word grit mean to you? Grit means the ability to persevere. Like for me, grit is a degree of perseverance because these jobs are hard. Any job is hard, but I think sometimes these jobs tend to be a little bit more difficult. So for me, grit is a degree of perseverance and probably personal strength. Layla, you're the best. Thank you. Oh my gosh, thank you. That was so much fun. That was crazy. I didn't even really realize we were doing it. We just started doing it. Oh yeah, that's how it goes. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback. So feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.